Just because Da Vinci painted it doesn't make it true. No, but history, she does make it true. Now, listen to this. It's from the Gospel according to Philip. Philip? Yes, it was rejected at the Council of Nicaea, along with any other Gospels that made Jesus appear human and not divine. And the companion of the Saviour is Mary Magdalene. Christ loved her more than all the disciples and used to kiss her. But this says nothing of marriage. Well, actually, um, Robert. Actually, in those days, the word companion literally meant spouse. And this is from the Gospel of Mary Magdalene herself. She wrote a gospel? She may have. Robert, will you fight for her? She may have. And Peter said, did he prefer her to us? And Levi answered, Peter, I see you contending against a woman like an adversary. If the Savior made her worthy, who are you indeed to reject her? And then my dear Jesus goes on to tell Mary Magdalene that it's up to her to continue his church. Mary Magdalene, not Peter. It uh, sounds kind of convincing, doesn't it? Especially coming from a Brit. You know? It always sounds so much more learned. I'm always jealous of that. I sometimes just want to be British. You know? But especially one who's uh, knighted, uh, that guy, that actor up there, Sir Ian McKellen. And it's in some measure, it's because of claims made uh, through Dan Brown's famous book, The Da Vinci Code, and subsequent film, that we have been examining how the Bible, how this Bible was built. And so last week, we examined the Bible's production, its distribution, its quality management. By quality management, referring to the history of the early church and safeguarding and naming the New Testament books that were deemed inspired by God and authoritative for life. If uh, you listened to last week's message, one thing, and by the way, I would encourage you to, this is kind of part two. I don't normally go into self-promotion mode on on messages I've done in the past, but this is kind of a part two this morning you're, you're walking in on. If you listen to last week's message, one thing might immediately stand out from this clip, and it, it's this, that it was not at Constantine's Council of Nicaea during which the Books of the Bible were discussed or officially sort of ratified by the councils of Hippo and Carthage. So right away we get a little bit of a misnomer there. And as we saw last week when we discussed the process of naming which books were authoritative for life, they were books that were already considered to have divine authority. Because this whole process of what we call canonization, or all the Bibles being put together in this book and being deemed inspired by God, was a process. It was not a singular meeting or council where we, boom, people rubber stamped which books were in and threw away. You know, used as kindling books that were not. It didn't happen like that. This was a, a process. And we saw the history of that last week. And today what we're going to do is look at the criteria of that process. The criteria we know that was used by the early churches and and church fathers to affirm books that were inspired by God. 
and keep others out like the Gospel of Philip or the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. So we're going to get right to work. All right, here we go. Uh, Put your thinking caps on. If you've wondered in your life why these books in the Bible, why are these books included, others were not, can I trust this thing? This is part of it. And what I hope this morning is that you will see is it was a reliable process. And we can trust this Bible we read and can build our lives on it even. So criteria number one that was used by the early church is the book written by an apostle. We're going to look at four criteria this morning that were used across the board. Was it written by an apostle? Why might this be important? Well, first of all, apostles lived with Jesus as an eyewitness to His ministry, to His death, and to His resurrection. The only exception to this is the Apostle Paul, but even Paul, when writing in the New Testament, acknowledges that he is kind of the one exception. He calls himself an apostle abnormally born. Otherwise, these apostles all were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, ministry, death, resurrection, just read why this is important. First John 1, 1 through 3, where one of the apostles, John, says this That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was made manifest, it was revealed. We have seen it. And so we can testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. So that, so here's the reason why. We, so we've seen Jesus. We've been with Him. We know, so, but we, so we want to tell you about Him so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now imagine, as you listen to this man, how much more authority is it bear that this man was with Jesus, touched Him, heard Him, been around Him, since His power and authority, so that you can have fellowship with us because we know God, God of the universe through Jesus Christ. So it's important because these apostles lived as eyewitnesses to Jesus. Uh, It's also important because to the disciples who became apostles after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus uniquely promises instruction and leading into truth by the Holy Spirit. It's this unique promise to speak what Jesus wants them to speak and to even tell of the future. It says this in John 14, 26, and again repeated in John 16, 13, and 14. That there's this unique promise that Jesus gives to His disciples, later called apostles after His resurrection, to guide people into truth and to tell of the future. In other words, write the New Testament. So, just as a side note, you might hear apostleship spoken of in the realm of spiritual gifts. Uh, Indeed, it's in Ephesians 4. But I happen to think that it's the only non-operative gift today. Now, this is... Just there's disagreement on this, and it's all very open, and that is nothing wrong with that. It's just my personal thoughts that it ceased with the closing of the canon for this very reason, the closing of the Bible, because apostleship is interwoven with the authoritative scriptures. It was interwoven with writing the Bible and also 
dependent on being an eyewitness to Jesus. Kind of what it means to be an apostle. And so it's important because Jesus promises the writing of the Bible to the apostles. Also, the office of the apostle has authority equal to that of the Old Testament prophets. So the Old Testament was pretty much written by prophets. God would speak to prophets and prophets would speak on God's behalf to people. It's just how it worked. And they would say, thus saith the Lord, blank. Well, in the New Testament, that role is taken up by these apostles. Right? People like Matthew and John and Peter and others. So Peter encourages his readers to remember, for instance, this is 2 Peter 3.2, encourages his readers to remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Right? So commandment through the apostles. According to Acts 5, to lie to the apostles is tantamount to lying to the Holy Spirit and to God Himself. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul puts it this way, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you, Thessalonians, receive the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you. There's this recognition that the apostles are now taking over this office of the prophets to speak for God. So, this is our first criteria for choosing the books of the Bible. So I put together a list of 27 books of the New Testament. I put them up on the screen here. Uh, and we're going to cross some out because we know a lot of these people were apostles. So uh, go ahead and go to the next slide. These are the ones that would not be frauds. Alright, so we got uh, a few left over. Uh, the Gospel of Luke, Acts, because Luke was not an apostle, uh, James, Hebrews, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, uh, we have the Gospel of Mark, and Jude. Alright, but we're gonna, about to cross two more out, get excited. The Gospel of Luke, and to some extent Acts as well, gets an automatic pass, I'll tell you why. Read with me 1 Timothy 5, which is written by an apostle, thus authoritative for life. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18 says this, Let the elders who rule well, elders in a church, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, I could have ulterior motives for sharing this verse for you, right? <laughs> but I don't. I don't. Talk about that more later. All right. Uh, for the Scripture says, the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Scripture also says, and the laborer deserves his wages. All right, this is important. An apostle is saying, the Scripture says this. All right, the first quotation is from Deuteronomy 25.4, so he's quoting the Old Testament. But the second quotation there is from Luke 10.7, with exactly the same Greek words. In Luke 10.7, Jesus says, remaining in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. He's sending out the, the uh, disciples. For the laborer deserves his wages. So Paul is quoting Scripture here, and he says he's quoting what is Scripture. In other words, the, an apostle is saying, the book of Luke, and what comes from there is Scripture. All right? And, and so it's authoritative. And, and similarly, Acts, which as we know is, is definitively was also written by Luke, gets thrown in there as well because Acts is really just an extension, meant to be a true extension of Luke. 
uh, the Gospel of Luke. So Luke, Acts, authoritative. Uh, you can cross those two off the list as well. So, uh, boop, we got those. We still have some left here, so let's keep going. Criteria number two, and you're going to see a lot of these kind of um, overlap. A lot of these books of Scripture fit many criteria. Criteria. Uh, criteria number two, for including this in the Bible, was it widely distributed? Was this book widely distributed in the first century A.D.? All right, during the time in which these churches were formed, Christianity starts to spread, getting into the second century. Was it widely distributed? Why might this be important? Well, we mentioned before, canonization is a process. Uh, the churches were testing and recognizing the authority of these letters and of these gospels that they were reading before the churches, okay? Much of this was happening while the apostles were still alive and visiting, even shepherding these churches. All right, so it wasn't someone coming in later and saying, oh, we think we should include these books. We know that there really was a historical weeding out process. If one church, if a church would see it as authoritative, it gets copied, it was passed on, otherwise it would die out. And so that's why it's important. The more manuscripts we have now from ancient history, the more we see, well, this seems to be factual, seems to be authoritative. Think of it a little bit like the Associated Press of today, all right? Now, uh, if enough sort of journalists widely recognize that a story is, is factual, that it's a legitimate news story. It circulates through what's known as the Associated Press, worldwide press. That's why, at least with an Associated Press story, it's nice to get a few facts and get out the door, right? On my, when I open my browser, my web browser, I have my, my Yahoo page open up and as Associated Press stories. That's all I have on there because I want to know kind of the basic facts, the news of what's going on, you get in and out with all the editorial slant, right? We know it's news, it's factual, right? And we don't always know that. Like you turn on certain news stations and publications and you're getting all this sort of like, like really, is this courtroom case, like is this really news? I don't, I don't, not really sure. Now, Associated Press, not quite as reliable as Scripture. I'm not saying that. But, but you get the point. You get the facts, you get out the door. Kind of, okay, this is real news. Kind of the same idea here. Widely circulated, all of, everyone acknowledged, okay, this is God's Word. And so we're going to circulate it widely. We can know how widely distributed the books of the New Testament were by the sheer number of surviving manuscripts, all right, which were written in Greek. Approximately, now check this out, approximately 14,000 surviving manuscripts still exist from New Testament books from antiquity. All right, so just to give you an idea, like, okay, that's a big number, maybe, I don't know, what do I have to compare that to? I'm going to give you something to compare that to. By way of comparison to other ancient works, famous ancient authors and works, for instance, uh, Pliny, I have a little chart here, Pliny the Younger, who wrote a famous history. We have seven surviving manuscripts from this guy. And the earliest manuscript we have of his was written 750 years after he wrote. All right, just seven. Uh, Plato, you've heard of Plato. Uh, the person, not the substance that kids play with, right? Uh, just, you know, for audio purposes. We're on the radio after all, right? Uh, tetra, 
his famous works. We have seven surviving manuscripts. The earliest one we have is 1,300 years after he wrote. Uh, Caesar, you've heard of him, conquered some places. Married to Cleopatra, killed. Uh, Gaelic Wars, his Gaelic Wars, only 10 surviving manuscripts. But people read it, they assume he wrote it, all that stuff. Written 950 years after writing. Tacitus, famous historian, wrote some annals of history. 20 manuscripts, 1,000 years after his writing. The first manuscript we have of his. Aristotle, 49 manuscripts, 1,400 years after writing it. Sophocles, so we're getting a little higher here. 193 manuscripts that survive. But the earliest one we have, 850 years after writing. Homer, the author. All right, Homer, the author. The Iliad, very famous book, right? Six, we're getting a little higher. 643 surviving manuscripts about 1,000 years after writing it. The New Testament, a book of antiquity. 14,000 surviving manuscripts of these 27 books. Only in the earliest version is only 100 years. Earliest surviving manuscripts, only 100 years after it was written. We all acknowledge that Homer wrote the Iliad. People acknowledge that Plato had these amazing and sophisticated philosophies in his writing and that he wrote. These people wrote the Bible. They were widely distributed because they were seen as authoritative for life. In the earliest copy, only 100 years after it was written. That's two, was 2,000 years later. Awesome evidence for the Bible's reliability. And the quality among such a large selection is unparalleled. Check this out. Only, only 0.5% of the New Testament bears any discrepancy between manuscripts. So there's all the number of different manuscripts of the New Testament. And there's only discrepancy or contradiction in 0.5%. Compare that, for instance, to, to Homer. 643 manuscripts. 5% of that writing has discrepancies. So the Bible has 10 times, or, or excuse me, the Iliad has 10 times more errors or discrepancies. And among the 0.5% of the New Testament discrepancies, in them, none of them have uh, any core Christian teaching. They're all little things and little asides and things of that nature. So they don't affect core Christian teaching. 0.5%. Ancient writing. It's amazing what we have. I want to bring up this list again. Was it widely distributed and recognized by these many churches? We can cross through some more of these. All right, bam. Now some of them are getting double cross-throughs, double strike-throughs for you word people out there. Uh, Just another sign that they're authoritative for life. The Da Vinci books, the Gospel of Philip that was mentioned in that clip earlier, only one copy exists, still exists, and it makes no claim to be a gospel. But instead, it's a collection of brief excerpts from these Gnostic writings. The Gospel of Philip is not claimed to have been written by an apostle. Interestingly enough, not claimed to be written by Philip. In fact, the book is called by Philip's name simply because he is the only apostle mentioned in the book. He's just mentioned in it. They'll tell you that. The Da Vinci Code. The Gospel of Mary, or Mary Magdalene, an early 3rd century Gnostic writing. We have one Coptic text found in 1945 
which consists of, of two small extant fr- fragments, two small fragments that are translations of earlier Greek texts with a bunch of words and phrase, phrases missing. Okay, so in each case, one or two existing documents. What does it show us? That from the earliest of times, people were not reading this as being authoritative for life. The gospel that was spreading to churches, churches were not reading this. Was it some conspiracy that Constantine did? No, because people recognized early on, these aren't authoritative for life. This guy's not even claiming that it's a gospel or written by him. Okay, I'll move on. Third criteria. Is the book consistent with sound teaching? So we have, was it written by an apostle? Was it widely distributed? Is it consistent with sound teaching? Now you might object here, oh wait a minute, how is this a possible criteria? If you're trying to determine where to find sound teaching, right, in which books, you can't use the books to prove they are the right books. Does that make sense? Like, that's kind of cheating. You can't use these books to prove that it's the right books for teaching, for good teaching. But the good news is, first of all, the apostles and friends of the apostles, remember I mentioned last week, there were, there were friends who were still alive at this time, people, you know, Irenaeus who was going to progressive dinners with John and his wife and this sort of thing was going on, okay? They were mingling. Apostles and friends of the apostles were still alive and were consistently proclaiming sound teaching during this time. So as books were being widely distributed and we have copies from their apostles and friends of the apostles still alive. In addition to that, the Holy Spirit was working powerfully during this time, providing checks and balances. We know from Acts chapter 5, it's quick to remind us of the unusually quick judgment of the Holy Spirit during this time when people lied, when people produced something false. And it was circulated in the church, man. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, when they lied, people were carrying them out the door, burying them in the graveyard. I mean, so not only was it an exciting time where God was moving and people were proclaiming Jesus, it was a grave time. For the leadership in the church to say, oh, man, we, re- like, we do it with trembling, but we recognize this is authoritative. And so we're going to preach it and we're going to distribute it. So is it consistent with sound teaching that was being proclaimed during that time? So we bring out our list again. We get some more, str- look at this, covered with strikes. So these are not frauds. These books, plenty of evidence to support this. Last criteria. Is it Christ-exalting? Is the book Christ-exalting? So this is what the early church was looking at because all of the New Testament centers on Jesus. Okay? He is the focus of the New Covenant, the New Testament. Everything centers around Him and Him being God and Him forgiving the sin that separates us from God the Father. So does that book exalt Christ? This, this criteria is actually suggested by our good friend F.F. F. Bruce in his book, The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? A great book. If you're interested further in this subject, you can mooch off the pastor's library. We have a list in the back where you can just check out a book from all the books I have, whatever. That's one of them. It's a great book. Why is this important that a book is Christ-exalting? Read with me in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago, At many times, in many ways, 
God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He created the world. The book of Hebrews opens up saying, Jesus is the center of this book. He is the center of everything. He is the one who now speaks to us authoritatively. As we learned earlier, Jesus speaks, and often through his apostles. That's a side note. And admittedly, this criteria is important for the book of Hebrews because while Jude and James were brothers of Jesus, they were eyewitnesses to his life and his ministry. And Mark worked very closely with Peter, one of the apostles. We know that as well. We don't know about Hebrews. We don't know who authored Hebrews, this book in the Bible, book in the New Testament. However, there are few more Christ-exalting books than Hebrews, where we see, I mean, Jesus is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament institutions, or he is superior to them. So, in chapter 1, he is superior to these angels. He is like the high priest in the Old Testament, but he is superior to them. He is like the tabernacle where people used to worship in the tabernacle. People will now worship Jesus, but he is superior to that tabernacle. I mean, you just go on to read what the book of Hebrews says about Jesus. Verses uh, 3 and 4, for instance, of Hebrews 1 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins like a priest, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And of course, his name, Jesus, means Savior. And so all of the 27 books that we now have of the New Testament have either three or four of these criteria met. All right? But the following books did not. And they are the reject books. We're going to look at these quickly. Here are some reject books. You might just hear floated around. You know, I don't know. Someone might bring them up. You might hear it on CNN. You might hear it in a, a discussion people are having. These sorts of things. Like I said last week, you might hear it on MTV News. That's where I heard about it. All right. First, the Old Testament Apocrypha. All right, Apocrypha means hidden writings. They are considered to be of some value because they provide some history and, and some insight into the, especially the 400 years between the Old and New Testaments, but not considered authoritative and inspired by God. They are. I'm just going to go through them quickly. First and second, Esdras. Raise your hand if you've read any of these, by the way. Or, I don't know. First and second, Esdras, Tobit, Judith, additions to Esther, wisdom of Solomon, Baruch, Ecclesiasticus, not to be confused with the Ecclesiastes, uh, the letters of Jeremiah, prayer of Azariah and the three young men, Susanna, Bell and the Dragon. Doesn't that just sound like a good like DreamWorks movie or something? I don't know. Uh, prayer of Manasseh and First and Second Maccabees. Again, a lot of it have some great historical things to kind of fill in the gaps, but not authoritative for life. There's also what we call the New Testament era. Uh, these are written in the New Testament era. Pseudepigrapha. It's a complicated name, but pseudepigrapha means false writings. Uh, they have some historical value because they do provide some insight on what was being studied at the time, what was being looked at, but only historical for, because they're called false writings. They are false. 
we have the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Truth, the Gospel of the Twelve, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Basilides, the Gospel of the Egyptians. I guess the Egyptians want to get in on this, but uh, the Gospel of Hebrews, the Gospel of Matthias, the traditions of Matthias, the preaching of Peter, the epistle to the Laodiceans, uh, the Acts of Andrew, the Acts of Paul, the Acts of John, the Acts of Pilate. <laughs> Pilate got one. I mean, he killed Jesus, but he got one. Um, Acts of Paul and Thecla, First Clement, Epistle of Barnabas, the Didache, Shepherd of Hermas, the Apocalypse of Peter. Now, in a moment, I am going to give you a chance to tell me why some of these books didn't make it. I'm going to explain more in a minute here. But I just want to close with this. I was waiting in the, in the grocery store yesterday. I'm waiting in line yesterday morning. And a woman was wrapping up a conversation with the cashier. And she was obviously feeling some consternation uh, in her life. And she concluded, man, I, I just, it's the part of the conversation I heard. I just hear so many voices every day. I don't know who to trust. I now took a step back first to make sure she wasn't schizophrenic. <laughs> or, you know, a curl a squash at me or something. But once, once I realized she was on the level, I, that statement hit me pretty hard, you know, that I hear so many voices every day, I don't know who to trust. Every day, each of us are hearing, and, and people you know are hearing and internally absorbing competing voices, right? And in competition for our love, our loyalty, they're in competition for our trust. Yet we rarely question how reliable is the source, is it reliable because it's new? Is it reliable because it's someone I know? None of those things make something true or not. God speaks to us today primarily through the Bible. And He is competing for you. He is competing. He is jealous for you. And my hope is that you see that His voice is reliable. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, the Bible. Some of us are here this morning and and we have trusted the Bible in the past, but this might be an encouragement. I pray that it would encourage and solidify that these are words that they can build their life upon. But for other of us here, we come in skeptical wondering, having legitimate doubts. You know, why did people choose these books and why were they brought together? I pray that through this morning and last week's message as well, Lord, you would encourage people's hearts that you would, which we know has to be a work of your spirit, just bring them over the edge to really give the Bible a second chance to see, wow, that this wasn't something that a couple of people got together, a couple of loonies got together and just said, we're going to choose this because we want to keep power and we want to keep authority and this sort of thing. But it was a process which you superintended, which was reliable, which was trustworthy and rational, but also done by your spirit. We thank you for your word because it's a word to us. So when you, Jesus, say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, we can believe that the God of the universe spoke it and meant it for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.